0: 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit.
1: Well good morning everybody. Uh, my name is Brant. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ City Church in Quetzalano and it's my joy to, to welcome you. Uh, if you're new here and you perhaps came in this morning and you don't actually have a Bible, I'd love to uh, have one given to you. We have a wonderful Connect team. If you raise your hand nice and high and say, hey, I, I'd like to have a Bible, uh, they will spot you and they will uh, bring you a Bible from the Connect table. Also, because we are in our First Corinthians series uh, right now, we got someone on the Connect team. We have a Bible need over here. Uh, we can get that to you, that would be great also, um, we have 1 Corinthians little booklets. So we're in the series right now on 1 Corinthians. So If you'd also like a 1 Corinthians booklet and you don't have one, it's just the text of 1 Corinthians with some notes in the margin to, to take notes uh, through the sermons here. Please grab one of those as well. They're on the Connect Desk and we can get one uh, for you on the way out. Uh, well, again, welcome. Uh, it's my joy uh, to be with you. So let's, let's pray as we begin to now jump into the Word of God together. Uh, holy God, we, we come to you this morning and we are just awed that we get to come into your presence. Lord, that you who are so high and exalted would invite us to come before you. That you'd invite us to be in relationship through you, through Jesus Christ, your son. God, we, we're just awed by your generosity and your goodness to us. Well, I pray that you'd work right now by the power of your Holy Spirit um, to cut through the distractions and the, the various things that are in the way of our hearts and our minds that, that prevent us from, from even seeing you and your goodness right now. Lord, would you help us to see you? Would you help us to catch a glimpse uh, of the way that, that you are powerful and good in your love that you seek uh, even those who are dead in their sins to save them and to reconcile them with yourself? We ask you to glorify your son Jesus Christ and do mighty things in our midst. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said uh, this morning, we're going back to our 1 Corinthians series that we paused way back in May. So I, I know that for some of you, that means that you've forgotten that we ever did 1 Corinthians. And for another group of you, uh, you've not actually been here for very long. Maybe this is your first Sunday, and you don't know anything about the letter to First Corinthians. Uh, because of that, I wanted to take a little bit of time this morning, it'll be a bit of a different sermon, to, to jump in to start to orient us again back into First Corinthians before we look at the text uh, that Amy read for us. Um, so let's, let's look at First Corinthians. What is it? Uh, we want to make sure we don't feel like we're just entering a conversation halfway through, so let's get oriented. Uh, Well, 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's a letter. It's a letter written by a man named Paul, and it was written and it was sent to a church that was in this ancient city of Corinth, a city you can still visit today uh, in Greece. And why did Paul write this letter? Well, what had happened was this. See, after Jesus had died on the cross and after he was raised again to new life, there was this awesome report that was going around in the world, in the Jewish world, that, that God was real, Uh, that he was saving people, that he was doing that through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who he sent as the Messiah. And and this word began spreading like wildfire, and people began hearing this good news, and actually through the miracle of of faith, the miracle of what God was doing by his Holy Spirit, suddenly being transformed and, and experiencing this new life that was in Jesus Christ. People were excited about it. It was it's very exciting. Uh, it was going through that world like wildfire. And along in that time, uh, one of the people that God saved was this man named Paul, the Apostle Paul. Jesus confronted Paul on a journey that he was making. He was still deep in his own sin. He was actually someone that was persecuting the church of Jesus. He was after Christians. And Jesus stops him and says, actually, Paul, I have a better plan for you. How about you serve me? How about you become the one that I would send out to tell the whole world, far beyond the Jewish world, about who I really am and what I am doing. So together uh, with the other leaders of the church, Paul then affirmed to become the missionary that was sent to this non-Jewish world, the area all around the Mediterranean. And his missionary work was a pretty wild venture. You can read about it in the book of Acts in the Bible. There's lots of wild stories and crazy things that went on. One of the things that made it wild and crazy to us in ways that maybe we would not immediately intuit, are that the, the ancient world was so different actually from our world today that I don't think we'd recognize it if we were there. It's not like you just go to Europe and you travel around in, in the Near East right now and like, oh yeah, this is just what it was like, you know, no problem, I understand the ancient world. Now, it was different than our world today, and it was different for one significant reason. It was different because Christianity, which spread across the world from the time of Jesus' resurrection forward till today, has so influenced society in human history that actually we still think Christianly today in most of our societies. In the significant way, Jesus' words and Jesus' work has transformed us. But that wasn't the case back then. So Paul's about this missionary work and it's an ancient, crazy world. It's a world where might really did make right. I know that happens today in little bits and pieces, but it kind of happens in ways that we all know are wrong. And in the ancient world, it happened and people thought it was right. They took it for granted. It was a world that was full of abuse. It was a world that was this variegated world full of different kinds of pagan idol worship and worship practices. It was full of different sexual perversions, orgies were the norm. I know that happens sometimes today in in niche uh, sexual experiences. This was like normal practice. And you you go, you bring your wife and you go to the party down the road. Like this is the, the kind of thing that was normal in those days. There was temple prostitution, there was rape, there was cruelty that was normal. It was normal to think of your slaves as your property, that their bodies belonged to you to do with as you pleased. It was normal to take your children if you didn't want Joey. Well, you just put Joey out near the the woods up in the mountains and you let the animals have their way with Joey. This is the world that was ancient and that Paul was a missionary to. In Corinth, where he sent this letter, it was part of this ancient world. And just like we do today in our own culture, there's this church that that Paul had started in, in, in Corinth that he's writing to, they kept muddling up their Christianity with the culture that they lived in. They kept mixing those two things together. And it became so bad that Paul, when he left to go plant other churches, he started to hear things about the church in Corinth. Remarkable things. Things about shocking immorality in that church. Oh my goodness, I cannot believe a church of Jesus is doing that. Shocking things about their division. Hey, this is about unity and love in Christ, and yet this is wild brokenness and division in the church. So Paul, in response to what he hears, he writes a letter to the Corinthians because the Corinthian church looked more like Corinth than Christ because the Corinthian church looked more like Julius Caesar than Jesus. And Paul wrote this letter and it was full of rebuke. If you've read it, there's lots of these over-the-top statements of Paul rebuking the Corinthians. There's rebuke, there's instruction. He's actually got a lot of compassionate instruction for them because they sent him some letters that sincerely were full of questions they didn't know the answers to. And throughout all of this letter, Paul's doing one thing in particular. He's consistently trying to lead them back to Jesus. To lead them back to Jesus. The Jesus who saved them through his humble, others-oriented sacrifice on the cross for their sins. He's leading them back to this Jesus who poured out the Holy Spirit into their lives to free them from that old way of life. To cause them to live into something so much more beautiful and good and true than anything they used to be. No longer slaves to sin, no longer living for themselves, but full of the Holy Spirit in new lives, now given to Jesus to serve him humbly and joyfully. Paul's bringing them back to this over and over and over again. And all that is the background. That leads us then to our passage this morning, beginning in chapter 12. Verse 1. And in beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, our passage begins with these words. Paul says this Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. These words in the English, they they might not jump out to you. They sound just kind of humdrum and, and normal. But actually, if you've been reading 1 Corinthians, you'll realize, oh, these are significant words. Just look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Paul said, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Look at 725, now concerning the betrothed. Look at 8 verse 1, now concerning food sacrifice to idols. And 12 verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. See, Paul uses those two words, now concerning, in this letter, to introduce new sections in the letter that are the beginnings of the answers to the questions that the Corinthians have put to him. And here, in 12 verse 1, is the beginning of a new section, answering a different question, now concerning spiritual gifts. Yes, And it's a big section. So Paul's going to deal with this section now, 12, 1, all the way to the end of chapter 14. And that means because we preach long sermons on short passages of the Bible here at Christ City, uh, that means we're going to be in 12 to 14 for a good long time. Uh, And right away when you see that heading now about spiritual gifts and you get a little concerned, like, oh my goodness, this is going to get off the rails. It's a long time. I promise you there is a ton of good in this passage, this long passage that is for us, for our instruction. The whole of the word of God is for our instruction that we might love Christ and serve him and obey him. And there's good things here uh, for you too. So don't be scared, don't be intimidated. Um, We will break for four weeks at Christmas time. So we'll have a little pause then. But Paul continues, now concerning spiritual gifts. And as with the Corinthians previous questions, we don't know exactly what the question was. We just have the answer, right? So what did they ask? I don't know, something about spiritual gifts, I guess. But when you look at what the content of the letter is and what Paul's words actually are, I think we can determine that the question was something like this. Paul, which spiritual gift is best? Paul, is my spiritual gift better than hers? Like who's on top? I need to know the order. Give me the rank or to put it in a maybe a more relatable way to us who aren't accustomed to thinking in terms of spiritual gifts, if that's you. Hey, Paul, which spiritual practice is right? Which way of, of living out my spirituality is, is best? I think it's a good question. It's a question that actually would work in Vancouver today too, wouldn't it? Which way should I practice my spirituality and, and which way would, would be best? If I'm devoted to the practices of Meditation, is that best? If I mix that with microdosing uh, mushrooms or something, uh, is, is that best? I mean, we laugh, but I think it's a legitimate question in Vancouver, right? If, if I try to, to work out some kind of a, a, a process where I can become one with the oneness of the universe, is that, is that best? We have all these angsty spiritual questions here in Vancouver, don't we? I was actually at the beach yesterday with my kids. Uh, the tie was out. We went out on the, the flats at uh, Spanish Banks. And it was so interesting because um, I could tell something spiritual was happening with this group of women that were, I'd say over over 60s, but all t- together uh, as we walked out. And as we came back in after the tie was coming in, these women were, were wandering around. And it was some of the most bizarre spiritual practices I've seen, I think, in Vancouver. And, and they were, I think they're, I'm guessing, I'm intuiting, I think they're connecting with the earth because they, they, were, they were like... You know, waving and dancing. And then and then I think they're trying to find their inner child in some ways, cause cause they would also like get on all fours and walk around in the dirt. And then even though they were aged aged a little bit, they were they were trying to get their, their bodies with their arthritis, whatever was going on together, and you can see it was a bit awkward, and like jump into the puddles and, and, and splash and just experience the moment. And like how, how very Vancouver? How very Vancouver to, to just try to connect with the earth and, and through this spiritual practice like this. Which spiritual practice is best? And it can be confusing, I think, for us Christians in Vancouver because we think, wait, are, are we the ones who are spiritual or are they? If I'm going to live my best spiritual life now, do I need to, to do some of the things that I see in my culture in Vancouver and do I need to mix that in with what I see in the Bible? Am I missing out in some way? Or maybe Vancouver looks at us and wonders, what's the big deal with the church, man? Like, what what does a church have, spiritually speaking, that we don't here in Vancouver? And you see, just like we do, the Corinthians struggled at times to separate their cultural ideas of spirituality from the Bible's teaching about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. There's this confluence of things that it's difficult to pull apart. And so Paul writes to them. And he addresses now concerning spiritual gifts. Because he wants them to understand what God himself has revealed about true spirituality through his word and the Bible. So he begins to teach them. And this morning, we're going to look at what God has to say about our spiritual practices. And we're going to look at this first text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. But this morning's only really going to be a 30,000 foot view of these things. Because we're going to get into the weeds a little bit in the future. And we're not going to do that today. Next week, we'll start to get into the weeds. Right now, it's a 30,000 foot view looking at spiritual gifts. And today, for the rest of our time, we're going to answer two questions. First, what does it mean to be spiritual according to the Bible? What does it mean to be spiritual according to the Bible? Second, why has God given the church gifts of the Spirit at all? What's the point? And then we'll conclude just with a brief look then at what that would mean if we've answered these questions about what it looks like to be a Holy Spirit-filled person. We'll get into a lot more of that in the weeks to come. So first question, what does it mean to be spiritual according to the Bible? Well again, in Vancouver, you might associate spirituality with any number of things. Um, maybe with a feeling, right? If you've got some euphoria, ah, spiritual. If you're feeling sad and, and, and mournful, you know, not spiritual. It's, it's, it's this feeling-based thing. Maybe it's a force. Maybe again, it's that cosmic oneness kind of vaguely and nebulously defined. But the Bible's view of spirituality is all about a person. Not a feeling, not emotions, not experience. It's all about a person, a real person. And this person has a name. The person that the Bible talks about who fills us is the Holy Spirit of God. And He, together with Father and with Son, is God. And He's not a a force. I think some Christians might think of the Holy Spirit as just being a power or a presence of some kind. But no, that's not how the Bible describes it. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a person. One of the three persons of the Trinity. Very simply, the Bible teaches that there is one God in three persons. Something that we've come to call the Trinity because we see it in Scripture, one God and three persons. Each person the Bible teaches is fully God and each person is unique from the others. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit and vice versa. They're each their own individual persons and yet together they are each fully God. Together they are one God. So they aren't three manifestations appearing at different times, different places of the one God. They're not different masks that the one God could put on or off, depending uh, on the occasion, uh, like at different, I don't know, dinner parties and costume parties. And they're not three different gods. They're not even three different parts, like, like a third each, that together are like the, the Power Rangers, you know, coming together to make the, the, the super robot thing, if you can think back to the 90s. No, forever, God the Trinity has existed as one God in three persons. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a unique, beautiful revelation from God in the Bible. And these three persons have forever existed lovingly, unitedly, delighting in one another. See, God is a person. God is one God in three persons. And he has his own personality, his own character. And we could ask, Okay, well then, what is this one God like? What would distinguish this one God? What would be characteristic of him as a person? Well, the Bible says a lot of things about God. He's holy. He's just. He's perfect. All that he does is right. He is this concentration and perfection of all that is good and beautiful and true. And fundamentally and foundationally, the Bible teaches that he is love. God is love is love. Look at 1 John four sixteen. It says very simply, God is love. But the Bible's unpacking of God being love goes different places than we might expect. We often think about love as a feeling or of a desire, but the Bible unpacks so much more than that, that God is love is not about God's selfish desire or feelings. It's about self-giving. It's about generosity. It's about radical commitment to the glory and the good of the other persons in the Trinity and with sharing his own goodness and his own love in generosity with others. It's a radical commitment to the other members of the Trinity and desire and and, and effort to share his love and his goodness with others. God is love. It's interesting to think about this. We're we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, I know, but I promise there's a point. There's a point and it's gonna make sense at the end. this is important for us to wrap our heads around a little bit. See, if we were to say God is love, but God were not a trinity, before the world was made, before the universe was made, who would there have been for God to love? Could God truly have been love? If love's more than just an abstraction or, and an idea, but actually is a concrete reality of self-giving and generosity, there would be no one for God to love if there was no trinity. But going back to time in memoriam, there has been Father, Son, and Spirit in this loving relationship. And the reality is that God is love because God is Trinity. God is love because God is Trinity, forever relating together in three persons. This one God forever existing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving one another. And this perfect reality where no difference was despised. No difference was viewed as a threat or something to compete with. But this perfect relationship of love where each difference was lovingly cherished and glorified and celebrated. And this perfect unity and commitment to all the great and glorious purposes of the Godhead. I mean, how different is that than us? What do we do with differences, Christ City? Right? There's three different persons, one Godhead, forever together in unity and love. What do we do with differences? What do you do with differences in your marriage? between male and female? What happens when, when you notice those in some shocking ways? Does it immediately, commit, commit, does it immediately lead to unity or does it lead to often to, to fighting, to division? What about society, right? When we see differences in society, what does it do? Does it lead immediately to more unity or do our human hearts take hold of those things and fight for ourselves in selfish ways and bring destruction and sin? What about governments? What about wars? Right? What about hatreds? See, we take difference and we make division. But God is so different because he is love. And in his love for us, he sees our brokenness. He has compassion on us in our sinfulness. And he's done something incredible about it. Because in love, this God of love wants to share his love with us. And Father and Son and Spirit, they plan and they execute our salvation together. The Father ordaining it and initiating our salvation. The Son, of course, Jesus Christ, is the one who became human and entered into this world and lived and died and was raised, making our salvation possible. And then Father and Son together, what do they do? They pour out the Holy Spirit, one of the persons fully God of the Godhead, onto us so we can start to enjoy the life of God brought into the same loving relationship that father son and spirit have enjoyed for all time so that where we used to be corrupt and broken and divided and hate-filled now God by the power of the Holy Spirit is filling us with this person The person of the Holy Spirit, pushing out the sin, pushing out the brokenness, so we become more and more and more filled with his own beauty and goodness instead. It's awesome. This glorious picture of what the Bible teaches about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So let's come back to the point. We've gone to the weeds, come back to the point then. I think we need to know that. So when we look at this text and we ask the question: who is spiritual according to the Bible? We can know the answer. We can ask, is it those who have powerful experiences or emotions? No. It's those who've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God because they put their hope and their trust in Jesus to save them. That is who is spiritual according to Scripture. They've been freed from their slavery to sin. They've been spared of the righteous judgment of God that they deserve because of their sin. They've been loved and reconciled and brought into relationship with with God. Those who are truly spiritual then will inevitably grow to look like the Holy Spirit who is filling them. And that's why Paul could write this in verses one to three. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know what you used to be. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, a different kind of spirituality, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand, he's drawing a line in the sand, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God but the person of the Holy Spirit ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So making a dividing point about Holy Spirit spirituality and Corinthian spirituality. And you have to imagine what it would have been like in Corinth because Corinth was a mecca of spirituality. It was this confluence where East met West and came together in every variety of worship you can imagine. If you go there today, you can see all the archaeology and all the temples and all the inscriptions, all the implements of worship to so all these other gods. And conceivably, you would have had some in the Corinthian church who maybe called themselves spiritual, also called themselves Christian, and also worshiped like pagans. I mean, sometimes they got themselves into some spiritual frenzy and they even said things like, Jesus is cursed. Maybe they were involved in other spiritual practices that were pagan and had nothing to do with the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says, no. He says, no. That has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit of God who fills his people. It's just like it would be deceitful for me if I ran around doing things in my wife's name that had nothing to do with Heather, poor Heather. So it's untrue for these Corinthians. There's no way that any so-called Christian spirituality that has nothing to do with God's true character to be correct. It can't be. If it doesn't look like the Holy Spirit, it can't be of the Holy Spirit. Paul draws the line in the sand. There's no Christian spiritual that does not love and serve Jesus Christ as Lord. As every true Christian loves and serves Jesus Christ as Lord, they're full of the Holy Spirit. And of course, to call Jesus Lord is such a big statement. You know what Lord means? It's confessing him as master. It's God most high. It's confessing, confessing him is the one that I want to learn to follow, to obey. The one that now I'm giving my, my life to. Jesus, instruct me. Teach me according to your word. You've saved me by grace. You love me. Now let me learn to follow you. And that leads us to our first application. Christ city, do you believe this morning that you are a Christian? Then let me ask you this. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus really, when it comes down to brass tacks, is he really your master? Is he the commander of your life? Are you a disciple who's learning to follow Jesus, to imitate him, to obey him? Christy, do you believe that you're spiritual this morning? Well, then let me ask you this. Is your life filled with the love of the character of the God who saves you and who fills you with his spirit? So this is the starting place this morning. Christian spirituality is unique because it looks like being filled with a unique person, the person of the Holy Spirit. That leads to our second question. And it's a good question, I think. Why then has God done this? What's his point? What's his purpose? Why did God give gifts to the church? And we're going to talk about spiritual gifts uh, in the next couple of weeks. We're going to get deep into the weeds. If you want to talk about that and you have lots of questions about that, we'll, we'll get there. But right now, we need to talk about why did God give gifts in the first place. And the answer draws yet another sharp distinction between Corinthian spirituality and Christian spirituality. Because in Corinth, everyone was trying to get ahead of one another. Right, And one of the ways that you could get ahead of one another in a very spiritual place like the city of Corinth was by being known as a spiritual person, right? What would it do to your street cred if uh, the whole church or the whole uh, city saw you one time in this like prophetic ecstasy, uttering mysteries on the street corners? I mean, they would be drawn to you. All right. You know, good job, John. And this, this guy's a prophet. You know, he, he's now climbed the ladder and has had this incredible spiritual experience that he's now showing. It would elevate John to the purpose of Corinthian spirituality was to make much of yourself. That's what the purpose was. But that's not why God gave the gifts. His purposes were much better and much different. Let me show you three of them. Well, first, why gifts? Because God chose to give them. God Himself chose to give them. Look at what God's Word says in 12, verse 11. This is beautiful. Paul says, All these, all these gifts He's just been talking about, they're empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Is that significant? As He wills. You see, God's gifts are as he wills, and they're not as you will. Isn't that significant? I think that's really, really good for us. God is a wise God. God is interested in our humility. He knows how good it is for us to, to just receive from his hand with thankfulness and joy and be used for his purposes. See, no one here in this church is gifted simply because they wanted that gift hard enough. (laughs) See, God gifts his church according to his choice. And that's beautiful. And there's two things that we need to, to learn from that we can apply to ourselves right now. First, that means that when we talk about spiritual gifts, we must talk about them submitting to the wisdom of a good and sovereign God who's given them as he has chosen we're not to be like kids at Christmas time, right? You guys think about Christmas, and I, well, I'm saying kids because it makes you feel better about last Christmas, right, right? When we were kids, not anymore, we occasionally received gifts and we're full of jealousy of other person's gift. When we were kids, we'd receive gifts and we'd feel frustrated that it was given to us and not the thing that we really wanted instead, right? It's different today because we're very mature people, but... The reality is that our reception of the gifts that God gives us in His wisdom and His sovereignty means we're not to be like that, like kids at Christmas time. We must not envy. We must be thankful. Praise God, He is wiser than me. And He knows which gift is best suited to which person for God's eternal glory. He knows exactly the best way to gift His church for our collective good and it says he wills it's not as you or i will and the second thing we need to learn from this is that when we're tempted to think that our gifts are all about us we must remember they aren't they're not about us see god gave them to us according to his purpose not ours see god's not so much interested in making much Of us, because he knows there's only one God who's worthy of worship, and it's not you. (laughs) It's certainly not me. It's him. It's him. And what's God's purpose? Well, God gives the gifts to the Spirit as he wants, and his purpose is to glorify himself through Jesus, his son. Christ, do you know the goodness of Jesus? Have you seen the glory of what God has revealed in his compassion, and mercy for sinners in Jesus Christ. Have you seen something of the power and the truthfulness of Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus came into this world so that we'd all see and worship and praise the God that we were made for. And all the gifts are meant to glorify and exalt Jesus for everyone to see how wonderful he is. So that we'd stop wandering around, squandering our lives, worshiping in little dust piles in the sand, trying to content ourselves in our sin. So get out of that. And so we'd be drawn to the glory and the goodness of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It's all so we would worship Jesus. You know, in one of the most effusive worship and exaltation-filled sentences in Scripture, and it is one sentence in Greek, Paul talks about the church, talks about salvation, he talks about God's blessings and he has a recurrent theme. The recurrent theme is to the praise of his glory. I'm going to read it for you. It's in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And notice the the recurrent themes of blessings given and the, the recurrent theme of the purpose of those blessings. with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Praise God, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He's pouring out blessing after blessing, Christ city. <clears throat> which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pouring out blessing in lavish ways to the praise of the glory of God. This is what all of God's gifts are about. Christ said, do you know what conduit is? Conduit is is a vessel or a channel that is used to, to bring some liquid or some fluid from point A to point B. That's what conduit is. Your tap and your sink is a conduit for water. But when you are thirsty, and when when, when that water you know will taste sweeter than any earthly drink, and you go to that conduit and you turn it on and you get the glass of water, do you break on the tap or do you rejoice in the water? You rejoice in the water. Christy, all of our gifts All that we are as human beings is meant to be a conduit to the glory of God. So we'd worship and praise and glorify him. Man, in the same way, how inappropriate do you think it would be if then when we are worshiping and praising God on a Sunday morning watching baptism testimonies, right? Which are all about the mercy and the the glory of Jesus Christ in someone's life. How inappropriate would it be for me to to, to wander up and, guys, I preached them their first sermon. And and then someone else, one of you coming here and jumping up and saying, I drove them to church. I'm the one that invited them and shared the gospel with them the first time. And and we just get a whole group of us standing between the person who is testifying to the grace of God, to the glory of God, and we get in the way. See, we'd be robbing God of his glory it's totally inappropriate and every gift every gift the holy spirit has given to the church is meant to be for the glory and the praise of jesus christ we receive it we're just vessels then that use it to his glory and his praise So, the first thing we learn about the purpose of the gifts is this they are given by god's choice For God's purpose, and God's purpose is to glorify his son, Jesus Christ, through the gifts. Second, God has given spiritual gifts for another reason. There's the other purpose we need to look at. For the common good. Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. See, 1 Corinthians 12, it doesn't have the only gift list in the New Testament. And these are not, it's not a limited list. God's gifted His church in, in incredible, innumerable ways. He's given different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the Bible is clear that actually that language of gift is just a regular language to talk about all the ways that God has sovereignly, by His will and His decision, put us in the situations that we're in, gifted us as His people in various ways. So, the breath in your lungs this morning, it's a gift. The food in your belly this morning is a gift. Your intellect, your personality, your unique abilities, they are gifts that God has given to you. Your appearance, how God's constituted you as a human being, they're gifts by his decision and by his will for his good purposes. Earlier in this letter in chapter 7, Paul even calls the married state a gift. It's a gift that some have. He calls the single state a gift. This is a gift from God to be used in his church according to his purposes. We're all receiving from God's generosity as gifts. See, God's gifted his church in hugely diverse ways with different people, some who are poor, some who are wealthy, some who are single, some who are married, some with different abilities and spiritual gifts. And why has he given all of these gifts? For one purpose for the common good, for the common good, Paul says. See, again, in Ephesians, Paul expands on this idea. He says, there, speaking of other gifts, the gifts that the spirit gives of various roles of teaching and leadership in the church, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, different gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Note the purpose. Of the purpose if the first purpose we talked about is the glory of God the glory of God through Jesus Christ the second purpose is saying yes that and for the common good for building up the church to be a benefit to others here that is so important in Christ City because if we're honest we think so often as the gifts that we've received we think that they're about us that they're for us but the gifts of the Spirit are never given simply to benefit you. That's a big point Paul's going to make over and over in these chapters. Are they a personal blessing? Of course they are, right? No one has more delight than that, that tap when the when the thirst of that thirsty person is quenched and the water comes into their cup, right? They, they rejoice in it. Like, all right, I got to be part of something pretty awesome here. But the the gift of carrying that water. It's not about the conduit. It's about the glory of the water. Paul says in 12.7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Man, let me encourage you this morning. All that you are, all that you are has been given to you by God. All that you are has been given to you by God to glorify Jesus as you use your gifts to serve others. I think this should encourage you because that means that there is literally nobody sitting here who God has not gifted. It means there is no one here who does not have an essential role in this church. Not a peripheral role, an essential role. You might feel peripheral at times, but that's not true. Jesus gifted you by his decision so that you could be useful for his glory in a particular and a unique way. It's amazing. Isn't God amazing that he would do that? Second, there's another thing we need to hear from this. It's this. If we read these verses in these chapters 12 to 14 simply to find out which gift we have for our own sake, right? We're just sitting on the edge of our seat to get to the gift list. Which one do I have? Which one am I? Then we've missed the point. We missed the point. It's it's not about that. In fact, we don't need to do a gift inventory to be gifted. We don't need to be doing a gift inventory to be gifted to then serve the church well to the glory of God. Some of you might not even know. That's okay. Are you serving God for his glory? See, gifts aren't about us. They're about our united service of one another for God's glory. And that's the next thing, the last thing we see about the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit. See, so the third purpose. So first, the glory of God. Second, the common good. Third, they're meant to unite us in our work. We're supposed to be united, Christ city, in our work to glorify Jesus. Look at what Paul says in verses 4 to 6 and verse 11, and notice how often he repeats the word same. There's varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Why does Paul keep harping on that? Same, 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 one, one, same, same. Why does he keep saying that? It's because the division that came from Corinth was about comparison about the gifts. Instead of boasting about the gifts. It was about living each of us for our own unique purpose for our own gifts. And it was wrong. <laughs> it was wrong because Christ city, there is only one Holy Spirit. And this one Holy Spirit collectively indwells us as his one church. You don't possess a different Holy Spirit than I possess. It's one and the same Spirit working within us. And that means that he's not divided and he's not competitive against his own unique purposes. The purpose to glorify Jesus Christ. And if he's one, gifting us as one, that's to draw us together in our diversity to glorify him as a united church not to be competitive. So Christ City, true spirituality is all about a person. It's about the Holy Spirit. And this person has gifted us for a purpose, to glorify God as we serve him, for the benefit of one another, the common good, and growing in unity in that effort. And if that's true, then let me ask you this as we wrap this up. Could you spot a spirit-filled person if you saw one? What do you think? Could you spot a spirit-filled person if you saw one? What would he or she look like? You know, Christ said, there's a lot of ways in our lives to fake spirituality. There's a lot of ways to do it. There's a lot of ways to... To, to be growing up in the church to be growing up in the church and to try to produce these leafy branches but no fruit just to kind of show off how spiritual and how good we are. But you know what you can't fake? When the person of the Holy Spirit who is generous in love who delights in all that God is when the person of the Holy Spirit who Pours out his love for our benefit. When he starts to work in someone's life, you can't fake that person becoming more like him. So I want to end it by reading a passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians 9, verses 8 to 11. See, so this is a passage in a different letter to the Corinthians, but it highlights God's generosity. Now highlights again God's purpose of his gifts to us and I think it gives us a clue about what it would look like to truly be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Paul writes this, "He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food." Look at the generosity of God, Christ city. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He gives, he blesses, he pours out. You will be enriched in every way. Look at the purpose to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You know what you can't fake? You can't fake it when the generous God indwells you. You can't fake when you are so full of gratitude for what he's doing in your life, are becoming generous to others like he's been generous to you not just taking what you've received and using it for yourself, but pouring it out for his glory and the benefit of others. Christ city, may we grow richly in the power of the Holy Spirit as we continue these chapters. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we come before you and we confess we are a sinful, greedy, selfish people. <laughs> and yet we are a people that the power of your Holy Spirit is presently working in. it, We thank you for that. Thank you that the person of the Holy Spirit is abiding in us. God, we ask, would you cause us to want to obey him, to walk in him, to be changed by him, to become more and more like Jesus Christ who poured out his life on the cross to forgive us of our sins so we could have new life? Would you show us concrete ways this morning, even this afternoon and this week, how we can begin serving in generosity. we not just taking our gifts, all that we've received for ourselves, but starting to use those things as an opportunity to, to glorify you as we share them broadly outward. Make us a generous church for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.